Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. If you've listened to any of our multiple episodes on the martini, you'll know that no one can confirm the origins of that particular drink. You may also recall that one popular theory is that it's an evolution of the Martinez, which is itself a variation of the Manhattan. But we shouldn't simply praise the Martinez for being the George Washington Bridge that connects Manhattan to um, New Jersey. I guess that's where this analogy runs dry. But you know what I mean, listener? This is a bona fide classic, a West Coast classic, one whose history we can be pretty definitive on. And it's certainly a drink deserving of a standalone cocktail college episode, which is why we're here today. Joining us is San Francisco local Nicholas Torres, the bar director of True Laurel. The Martinez is a drink Nico's made countless times in its classic guise over the course of his 15-plus year career. It also offered the inspiration for one of the most popular proprietary drinks at True Laurel, one that's been on the menu ever since day one. We're diving into both of those and so much more today, listener, on this week's edition of the Cocktail College podcast. We're in the Cocktail College virtual studio once more, and we're joined today by Nicholas Torres. Nicholas, all the way from the West Coast, thank you so much for uh, beaming in here today. Pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I know I know. we were speaking beforehand, both of us, uh, before we started recording, both of us getting over colds. And I would just like to point out that, you know, the one good, the one saving grace of feeling kind of ill this time of year is hot toddies. I never think to make them otherwise, but, you know, what a fantastic drink that is. Not the subject today, but any excuse to have a hot toddy, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, warm, boozy drinks are always soothing. We're Irish coffee people over here. I mean, that is true. You're in, you're in San Francisco right there, just to give a little bit of a, a more geographic you know, specificity, if that's the right word to be using here. Uh, but we're not talking about warm, boozy drinks today. We are talking about boozy drinks and a real interesting one for us to dig into, the Martinez. Yeah, the Martinez. That was um, something that we had talked about. Uh, I've been doing a little research on it. I kind of knew the uh, stories that I had been told, I don't know, 15 years ago. But now that I'm looking at it um, and having these thoughts that the martini itself, uh, which the Martinez predates, might be sort of a, a California invention. Controversial, maybe. Controversial take there, I think, for some. Certainly some over here in the East Coast might not, might not like to hear that. But um, talk us through your thought process there. Talk us through how this drink maybe acts as the bridge between the Manhattan, which is definitely, you know, by all accounts, an East Coast drink, uh, and the Martinez, I think it's pretty verifiable that it's West Coast, and therefore the, the Martini too. Talk us through the uh, the history of this drink, uh, please. Yeah, so again, you know, I'm, I'm no cocktail historian, and most of this is a Google search away, but I definitely was told these stories when I learned this drink a while ago, and like many of the old sort of foundational cocktail uh, ingredients uh, and specs. Uh, the stories of the how it originated are often pretty foggy. A little San Francisco reference there. Um, but you sort of hear two dominant stories, but both of them are really grounded in the drink being invented here in what we call now the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So the drink dates back pretty far. It's a really old cocktail. Um, it's kind of amazing, actually. 
I think the first written version of it um, might have been in an East Coast book was around like 1884. And then the ever so famous bartender, uh, Jerry Thomas, had actually made his way to the West Coast because the money was making its way out here. Uh, the gold rush uh, had brought so many people to the Bay Area. And all of a sudden, San Francisco has all these luxury hotels. And one of them was called The Occidental. And Jerry Thomas worked at The Occidental and supposedly created this cocktail for a guest that was traveling to another popular area in um, what is Contra Costa County now, uh, but still part of the greater Bay Area of San Francisco. Uh, 40 minutes away from San Francisco is a town called Martinez. And uh, actually named after Ignacio Martinez, which through a little research I just found out was the fourth um, alcalde, or so mayor of San Francisco, when San Francisco uh, was part of a California that wasn't part of the States yet. So it was still oh wow um, a part of Mexico. So uh, Ignacio, a former mayor of San Francisco, uh, was granted some land, or like uh, many of the Spanish uh, settlers that came here, took this land um, from the indigenous that were here, which were the Costanoans, uh, the Bay Miwok um, peoples, and settled in this area that was called, and which was named after him eventually, the town Martinez. So there, the town Martinez now, supposedly, though there's not many references, uh, there was a bartender of some saloon in this small town of Martinez that created this drink as well. Fascinating stuff. I love, uh, you know, super interesting story. Love that era. Well, you know, a very interesting era, obviously not, uh, uh, not completely amazing things happening at the time. But, um, Tell us about this drink, therefore, that the drink that is invented or supposedly invented um, and how it relates to those two others that we've been talking about, you know, today, that the Manhattan and the Martini, like, where does this lie? What are we talking about? Base spirit wise are the earliest records of this cocktail. What are supposedly the ingredients or reportedly? Yeah, the Martini, it's a funny drink. I think, um, like I said, I, I think I made my first Martinez maybe around circa 2012. Uh, not to date myself, but obviously the drink is way older than that. Hmm. Um, and the way I was taught, uh, if you just go through the ingredients, was that historically it was made with an old Tom Gin, which is a lighter, less juniper forward, sweeter style of gin. Mm -hmm. uh, some sweet vermouth, a little bit of maraschino, a dash of orange bitters, stirred, served up. And so, you know, the basic breakdown of this drink, if you sort of meld together the liqueur and aromatized sweet wine, is like many of our foundational drinks, base spirit, sweetener, bitter. Yeah. It's the same works as essentially an old fashioned. It's the same works as essentially a Manhattan. Um, and again, if you kind of combine those two elements, you're really looking at a gin Manhattan. Yeah. An improved gin Manhattan, even with the with the maraschino in there. Yes, that would be the correct term. The improved. <laughs> <laughs> if we're gonna get geeky, but um, what we're here for. That's exactly what we're here for, and you know, it's interesting because you're talking about that's the way that you were taught to make it, and very much does sound like we're talking about that Manhattan formula there. Um, when you look at say modern interpretations, or maybe those are based upon history. 
But it, I, I do see a number of different approaches going around. You see some where folks are, okay, these days opting for London Dry Gin instead of Old Tom, which is, uh, you know, to my mind makes sense because it's more available and probably more agreeable to modern palates. But you're also seeing, in some instances, people going like a 50-50. So equal parts dry gin and sweet vermouth. And then other people doing two parts gin, half sweet vermouth, half dry vermouth. And I don't know, that to me also feels like more in the spirit of the martini than the Manhattan, right? That people feel like they have some kind of liberty to tweak ratios and things like that, which is something we see a lot more in the former rather than in the Manhattan world. Yeah. And I, I think it really just goes to show that, you know, the, the history of this drink is very unclear. And leading up to this talk, I was like, I need to fact check what I know about this. <laughs> so I mean, the easiest way to do it, obviously, is a search engine. And I think if you go to uh, Wikipedia, the IBA ones um, are somewhere along those lines where it's equal parts. But I was yeah. like, I want to check other sources. And um, two, two of my favorite to compare um, when I actually am like, oh, I'm going to dig out a book. Um, and I have this two beautiful copies of this. But one of my favorite books is Here's How uh, by W.C. Whitfield. Have you ever seen this book? No, I haven't. It's an old wood-bound book with um, copper hinges, leather tied. It's re- it's got these really cute cartoons in it, and it's it's very lighthearted and silly. Um, and that was originally uh, published in 1941. Hmm. So you know, cocktail renaissance has happened. People are writing all over the world about it. It's something that's getting published. And then another book I like to look back on is Playboy's Bartender's Guide, which came out around 1979, Mm -hmm. right before the 80s, and a lot of marketing was happening. So you have drinks from two different eras, um, but with some of the same, you know, when I looked back to the Here's How, they actually, there was no Martinez in it, Hmm. which I found interesting because it was in 1941. But there is a page of sort of some of the staples that we know. And I looked up Martini, and I found this very interesting in Here's How by W.C. Whitfield. Uh, the Martini is listed as so. A half ounce of Old Tom Gin, or actually, let's not say ounce. These are ponies. Yep. Um, so half Tom Gin, half Italian vermouth, which in these books, you only had French vermouth or Italian vermouth, French leaning towards a drier style, and Italian meaning sweet. So you have half Old Tom, half Italian vermouth, one dash of orange bitters. Huh. Serve with a green olive. Huh. And that is the martini made 50-50 with sweet vermouth in 1941. Fascinating. Right? Isn't that strange? It's 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 so strange. I mean, it's again, it's it's a lot closer to what we expect from a modern day martini than the Martinez, but there's still that you know, there's still some of those characteristics there, the the Italian vermouth, the possible 50-50 ratio, and the bitters, which I think, you know, martini purists often go for, but I don't think is is a standard these days. I, I, I don't know. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. The great thing about it is right above it is the Manhattan in this book as well. And the Manhattan is also a 50-50 with vermouth. 
<laughs> so it, and it, it, it's interesting to me because I feel like around the time that I made this cocktail, Spirit Ford was really having a renaissance. And a lot of the recipes, uh, vermouth was also having a renaissance, right? Because in the late 80s and 90s, vodka kind of wiped out the idea of vermouth. Vermouth was gross. It was something <laughs> that wasn't refrigerated or kept well. Um, and that is, then as it started coming back, we started introducing it. But, you know, my Manhattan recipe has always been a two one. Uh, the martini recipe is typically a two to one. Um, but if you look at a lot of these old recipes, they were actually really wine forward. They were 50 fifties and they were lighter style, more sessionable drinks. I think that's, yeah, I think that's super fascinating and a great, great point that you mentioned as well, right? Like that when this drink gets rediscovered by folks, when, when, you know, the modern cocktail renaissance happens, yes, it definitely is an era of boozier, stirred, spirit-forward drinks. So it stands to reason that people would take that approach, whereas I definitely think the modern bartending landscape leans more towards that kind of 50-50 spec and is a lot more accepting of that. Um, definitely. I'll let f- folks, you know, have their own preferences on whether they think a 50 is a martini. Um, it definitely is. It definitely <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, like... You know, I'm going over all these different recipes really to show that these drinks are open to interpretation. And they're also delicious in many ways. I was actually at the, I actually had a drink last night uh, with a good friend. We were just catching up, went to um, a local bar close to True Laurel. Uh, It's one of my favorites. It's actually one of the oldest um, neighborhood bars in San Francisco. It's called The Homestead. It's been called many things, but the building itself is one of the oldest bars. Hmm. And the bar director there, a good friend of mine, uh, knows how to make a drink. I asked him for a Manhattan, but we're talking during the whole time that he's making it. I'm not watching what he's doing. He's not watching what he's doing. <laughs> he gives me the drink, and he had stirred me three ounces of whiskey with a couple dashes of Angostura. <laughs> and it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but I asked him if he forgot the vermouth and he took a straw taste and he said, definitely. So last night I had the driest Manhattan, but you know what? <laughs> I still considered it a Manhattan, I think. It had some more elements to it. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely, it definitely speaks to the versatility of these drinks and the combination of these ingredients that they can. You know, I said before that people are maybe more open to um, customizing when it comes to the martini, but you can definitely do it with a Manhattan for sure. Um, to bring us back to the Martinez, though, just for those who are listening to this, who are interested in the story now, but maybe they haven't tried it, if you can describe to us the the ideal flavor profile of this cocktail and what you're looking for from a perfectly executed version. Like, what do you want to taste? Should the gin be leading it? Should the sweet vermouth be having a big impact or is it a supporting actor? Uh, What is the profile of this drink in your mind? You know, I think the Martinez for me, the first time I had it, um, it actually came across as a delicious, but honestly somewhat sweet stirred drink. It definitely was lighter in profile than a Manhattan. you don't get many old Tom gins that are above 40 proof. In fact, most of them um, that we had access to were sitting around 37, 38. They also have a slight addition of sugar themselves. And then you're adding wine with sugar and a liqueur with sugar. So at the end of the day, it's a little bit of the spirit and the dilution that's drying out this drink. 
but much like a Manhattan, um, it has sort of, I want to say like a wintry profile. Um, there is a sense of the juniper in there. And of course there are some recipes that call for a dash of orange as well as Angostura bitters. So if you add those elements with the cherry, you have cherry and clove, you have bitter botanicals coming from the vermouth and again, the juniper. So this is definitely a good drink for this time of year. Now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. A winter martini. I love it. Yeah, definitely. And so let's talk about now ingredients. And I'm going to, yeah, we're going to have to commit to a few here because just in terms of style, because we've been speaking about Old Tom, but some folks, you know, maybe opting for London Dry. So again, let's approach this through the lens of someone's come to your bar. They said, I heard about this cocktail, the Martinez. I heard it's a classic. I'd love for you to make a classic Martinez for me. Nico, let's start by talking about gin. Yeah. What are you opting for here? You mentioned old Tom there. Is that what you're, you know, is that the the steak that you're planting in the ground? And do you have any preferences when it comes to brands or ABVs or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I'm not like a, a diehard on any hill of a recipe um, classic connoisseur, but we have old Tom at my bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone comes in and asks for the, the classics, I like to stick to the classics. So, you know, if, if you have the chance to make a Tom Collins, you reach for an old Tom. If you have a chance to make a Martinez and you have old Tom, you reach for it. Um, we do have it at my bar. So that's what, definitely what I would do. Um, I think I would just play around with the specs to make sure it brought some balance. Fantastic. And, 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 and you know, for those who maybe don't have an old Tom on their bar cart or on their back bar, uh, any recommendations? It uh, doesn't necessarily have to be only the one that you use at your bar, but any recommendations of, you know, where I should be spending my cash here if I'm in the market? On Old Tom's? Yeah. Um, there, I mean, how many are on the market? There's not that many, <laughs> um, at least to my knowledge. Uh, or at least that we have access to in California. We typically keep in stock Heyman's, mm-hmm. which I think is a little more accessible. In you know, you're not going to find it at, your conventional grocery store, but definitely a specialty bottle shop, I think would carry it. And there is a, it's actually an aged gin, but Bar Hill makes, uh, I believe it's called Old Tom Cat, mm-hmm. um, which is sweetened with a little honey, um, which I believe is the same honey they use to distill to make uh, their base spirit, their neutral, which is pretty cool. So that's a cool little uh, gin right there. But again, going back to the specs, if you don't have access to this, and you have to use a boozier gin, like a London Dry, that's going to work perfectly well. Um, just maybe play around with the sweeteners a little bit. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So what about that then? Sweet vermouth? Italian vermouth, as is they're is there calling it there in the recipes. Um, there's definitely a range out there, and there's definitely some that might sort of take command of the drink more than others. Definitely. Again, what, what kind of sweet vermouth profile are you looking for for this drink? I think for this drink, actually, it, um, it's nice to reach for a, a French sweet vermouth, you know, um, something from Chambéry, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, tend to have a little less caramel, um, a little less sugar in them. Um, because you were in our next ingredient, we're adding a little more sugar. I don't think you really need it to come from your sweet vermouth. Mm-hmm. But an Italian will work as well. It's just going to make the drink a little richer. Got it. Yeah, those, those French sweet vermouths tend to be a little bit less... I know, assertive than some of those Italian kind of big, bold, sweet vermouths, which time and a place for, of course, fantastic products. 
Um, so you mentioned that additional sweetening ingredient. Let's talk about it now. Is there one and only? Why, have you heard differently? No, did the, the maraschino. <laughs> Are you going to bring up Curacao? <laughs> well, you know, definitely curacao comes up in some recipes, but um, no, are, are, are there any other uh, cherry liqueurs that you're reaching for other than the most, you know, one of the most iconic bottles on a back bar, the Luxardo? Yeah, yes. I think Luxardo, you know, if it's someone coming in for that first time, Martinez, the first one they've had, again, we reach for that old Tom. We can play around with the vermouths. But I think Luxardo is the maraschino that you grab. Its flavor is so identifiable um, and it really is pronounced. And though it is pretty sweet, you know, mm-hmm. tame it with how much you use. You know, we're talking like a little over a bar spoon and um, it's going to come through. But there are, of course, a lot of good maraschinos out there and they all taste drastically different. So this is kind of like a big part of the drink. One of my favorite maraschinos probably comes from denver actually it's made by the leopold brothers very cool producer yeah definitely a thoughtful producer really cares about where the ingredients are coming from really cares about the process of making it small production a lot of thought and time putting into everything that they bottle Mm -hmm. but yeah you're right i mean especially when you're you're going for that classic version, the original version of the cocktail. You got to go for that Luxardo Maraschino, Maraschino, however you want to pronounce it. Um, final ingredient I have down here on the list. I just have it as bitters. Um, Bokers might have been the original, but we're talking orange bitters is the is the classic here, right? Any thoughts on that? I think that um, I always throw a mix of bitters in there. Orange is what's called for. Um, I actually think that there's recipes out there that the orange was curacao, where you actually saw dashes of curacao. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever you can get your hands on, I think it is pretty good here. I don't think this might be controversial, actually. But <laughs> um, bitters as that's that sort of that final finish, maybe the salting or whatever of your, your plate. Um, a lot of the older recipes, I think some, the bitters get washed away. So I think that's why you actually see um, in a lot of Martinez builds is to add a little bit of orange bitters and a, little, a dash of Angostura. Hmm. Angostura is so dominant. Yeah. It's really a flavor that comes through. But uh, we like Reagan's. Orange bitters is, I think, pretty accessible and good enough for me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a classic for a reason. Um, all right, Nico, why don't you talk about, why don't you walk us through the build of this drink as if you were making it for us today in the bar Uh, Start to finish with classic spec, please. Um, Take it away. Yeah, if if a guest were to walk into my bar and ask for Martinez, I'm going to probably build it as follows. I'm going to grab my Old Tom Gin. We're going to do what I was always taught was one and a half ounces. Um, But what you end up having is somewhat of a small build. So I'm going to do one and three quarter ounces of Old Tom Gin. I'm going to do three quarter ounces of a sweet vermouth. Again, I'm going to try to reach for probably a sweet vermouth from like Chambéry area. Um, But if an Italian vermouth is what I have, I'm going to grab for that too. I'm going to do a shy quarter ounce of maraschino. I'm going to do a dash of orange bitters, a dash of Angostura, and I'm going to stir it and I'm going to serve it up. It's typically called for an orange peel, though if you don't have an orange, a lemon would do just great. Because it's actually going to dry the drink out a little bit. Nice. Nick and Nora glass, coupe? Let's go with coupe. 
Yeah, keep it classic. The, uh, let's go with petite coupe. Petite coupe, yeah, because I'm thinking what we're two and three quarter ounces base ingredients there. Yeah, uh, you don't want this thing looking like a like I'm being shortchanged here as a guest. Yeah, we got to control that wash line. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, listen, here's here's another thing for us to explore now today because I know that you have uh, a, a kind of twist on the Martinez or your own approach to it at True Laurel that also speaks to your own approach to what you do with, when it comes to uh, making cocktails and your, you know, your philosophy there. So I'd love now for you to talk us through that drink and that approach and, and, and what it speaks to there. Definitely. Yeah, we have a, our menu at True Laurel is um, a seasonally driven sort of celebration of what our farmers are growing here close to us in California, uh, close in the Bay Area, and also what we can sort of get our hands on in some of the wild um, things that grow just around us that we can celebrate and really get these sort of San Francisco and Bay Area flavors into that drink that's in front of you. Um, and my approach to cocktail making, it can come about in different ways, but I do definitely have a classical foundation. And I, I think about a lot of classic drinks um, and maybe an evolution of them, a twist on them, like many people do. Um, and I think I came up with it in the pines under the palms, which is the name of um, our style of Martinez, uh, actually almost about seven, eight years ago. So it's a, it's an old recipe. Um, but originally it was a real simple twist on a Martinez. Um, and essentially I was just sort of taking the Martinez replacing the old Tom or the London or whatever you use with a new world gin. Um, and the new world gin that I was using was made by St. George, which is, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know about, but St. George is right across the Bay of San Francisco, uh, and being made in Alameda. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, it's really good stuff. And it really spoke to me because at the time true Laurel was not open and I was, um, the beverage director of a restaurant called Lazy Bear. It's a it's a fine dining establishment, uh, somewhat notable. It's gained two Michelin stars, and it was a really cool experience working there. It was nice one to get some experience in fine dining, but also it was sort of one of the first programs that I worked in where the chefs and the owner really pushed me to one use local ingredients. And also just like get out there and see what I could find. And they were actually doing a lot of their own foraging. And my uh, current business partner and chef of Lazy Bear, um, David Barzillet, was really obsessed with using uh, redwood tips in his cuisine. Um, specifically, sort of young sprouts of redwood. Uh, they have a very sort of forest pine flavor. Um, they're also very citrusy when they're young. and and edible actually. And so we had a bunch of redwood hanging around. We had spruce tips. Um, and I get to thinking about sort of the smells of the area around us and, you know, across in the North Bay, we actually are, are surrounded by beautiful landscape. We have uh, hills all around us, Mount Tam just north of us. And a lot of these smells of spruce, of, of pine, of redwood, they're kind of everywhere. Bay Laurel, these are all sort of uh, the local fauna and St. George, uh, um, this is long winded, but uh, St. George terroir is also very much inspired by these flavors. Mm -hmm. So originally I just took the Martinez 
replaced it, uh, replaced the gin with St. George terroir, as they call it. Yeah. And then I just batched the drink and I let it rest on young Redwood. Nice. Nice. So that was the original formula. And we picked up those forest flavors and how it got to its current state is a little funny, but it's definitely at its most evolved and most appreciated state. Um, When we opened True Laurel, we decided to introduce some whiskey to the cocktail. And there was some rationale behind this. I've always felt that much like our earlier discussion, the Martinez sort of being the gin Manhattan. um, I always felt that the Martinez was actually a great drink to give to whiskey drinkers who said that they don't really like gin. Hmm. We have a bunch of guests out there that sort of decide early on what spirits they do and don't like. Uh, People that think that their body doesn't sit well with brown spirits. Um, Typically, these guests actually don't know what makes spirits that color, um, whether it be aging or caramel, but they're typically unaware of it in general, that all spirits are clear spirits. Um, And so the Martinez, to me, was like a great introduction to whiskey lovers to start loving gin. So I had already felt that way. So it was really simple for me to think that this drink might work well with both base spirits. I love it. I love the approach. Yeah. And so, you know, thinking about the classics, when I make a Manhattan, I, I go for rye. So rye was the first whiskey that I tried to split it with. Um, and in all honesty, when I first split it down the middle, it was not that good. So we thought, how could we manipulate the rye? Um, and we said, well, we could infuse it with something or we could give it an, a, a slightly different profile. And I'm sitting on the drink and this is going to sound, it's going to come across as cheesy, but I was thinking too much about work and I went to bed thinking about it. And I literally thought of this in a dream, but in a dream, I thought that coconut and pine sounded amazing together. Interesting. It's still interesting when I think about it, actually. I think it, when I think of the flavors, a lot of things go with coconut though, but when I think of the flavors, it's not what screams out to me. I think I like how it sounded, coconut and pine. (laughs) And so, you know, we weren't going to make this drink a a colada. So (laughs) uh, we thought about how to introduce this uh, without adding a third base spirit of Malibu. (laughs) Um, So we did a fat wash on it. And, um, you know, this is, again, this, you know, we, we made this drink now seven years ago. So fat washing was around, people were doing it, um, but it was fairly new. And um, I think one of the cool things that we did early on was the style of how we fat wash it. So we really want to impart this coconut flavor, but we didn't want it just to be like coconut oil, like tanning oil. Um, mm-hmm. We wanted it to have some those like deeper flavors of coconut. So we took the pulp of the coconut and we call it a toasted coconut rye or Ooh. what do we call it? Yeah. Toasted Sounds coconut delicious. rye. Um, and essentially we get the oil to a boil and we essentially pan fry to a, a crispy brown uh, the coconut pulp in its own oil. So in its own fat. Nice. Confit almost. We then introduce the toasted flakes as well as the oil to the whiskey. And we do a standard wash on it where we let it impart its flavor. We shake it up. We let it sit for 24 hours, refrigerated or frozen. 
At that point, all the fat congeals, we're able to remove it as a cap very easily. We strain the coconut through an oil filter and um, we have this beautiful fat washed rye whiskey. That sounds incredible. It's really good. And really from there on out, beyond the split base, so we're, we're kind of now that we're dealing with um, higher proof stuff. So we've gotten, we've gotten away from that old Tom, which is a lower proof. Um, we're working with new, uh, new world spirits. And I don't know off the top of my head what terroir sits at, but I do believe it's above 40. I think it's around 44. Yeah. And um, the whiskey also is around 44. So we're just, we're, we're working with weightier stuff here. So we're going back to one and a half ounces as our base spirit, but it's split down the middle. So it's equal parts of the new world gin with the fat wash whiskey. And again, because now that we're using weightier stuff, and we got the whiskey introduction. We're kind of in between the worlds now of Martinez and Manhattan, kind of doing both at the same time. So I'm actually reaching for um, a richer vermouth to cut into those spirits. So we go with the Italian. Nice. Actually. Well, I, I led you astray there. I'm now looking at my recipe. This, this, this recipe has evolved over time. So we're doing a split of vermouth. A split of vermouth. We're using a classic Torino style. Ooh. Yeah. But same build. So now we're, we're doing one and a half base spirit, but that's split. We're doing three quarter ounces of our sweet vermouth. And the sweet vermouth is a split of an Italian vermouth and this other vermouth called Fotli. Have you had it? I have not had that. That's a new one to me. Yeah. F-O-T-L-I. It's a Spanish vermouth. So it's, it's definitely got the richness. It's not as rich as the Italian vermouth. Um, but like a lot of Spanish vermouths, which is something we haven't talked about yet, um, they tend to have a nice dose of oxidation on them. Like a lust out. Yeah. Phenomenal stuff. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, some like rich, but also some nuttier elements to it. So we do a split on that, but again, still three quarters. And then yes, we grab the Luxardo kind of going back for that classic sweet maraschino flavor. Mm -hmm. We hit it with a little bit of Angostura. There's actually no orange bitters in this recipe. And then the biggest difference obviously in evolution of this drink is that it's completely batched but it's batched for a purpose it's batched because we still want to impart more of those forest flavors onto this drink and so we take this forage redwood and we put this drink in small bottles and we let it sit for a day on the redwood nice and the final touch the final step of this cocktail is then right before it's served the glass and ice are misted with a little bit of a rock, which is an anisette. Nice. So much now we're sort of stepping into that realm of how you dress up a Sazerac, which, you know, is in the family of all this stuff. We're talking base spirit, sweetener, bitter. Yeah. Um, Sazerac almost, you know, essentially, like you said earlier, is an improved cocktail with the addition of, you know, what's not typically a rock, but an anisette of some sort. I really like a rock. It carries tannins. And it's got these like deep uh, anise and fennel flavors that I think pair really nicely with pine. That sounds that sounds delicious right now. Um, really intriguing combination there. That's good. And remind us again of the name of that drink. It's called In the Pines Under the Palms. In the Pines Under the Palms. I get it now. That the, the makes so much sense. And and you know, really interesting evolution there of the Martinez, but still remaining true to the soul of the classic, uh, remaining true to the soul of the drink. Um, 
Nico, we're going to finish off our show today with our five weekly recurring questions. But before we do so, tell me any final thoughts you have today on the Martinez. Oh, I, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful drink. If you've never tried one, um, most cocktail spots should be able to make it for you. Open your mind um, to how you like your martinis. You know, if you're one of those that thinks that a dry martini has no vermouth, um, you know, you're wrong. It, it means <laughs> that it's got dry vermouth in it. And um, you know, try yourself a, a wet one. Get get one with uh, some sweet vermouth in it. Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. All right, then let's do it. Let's round out the show as we do every week with our five questions beginning with number one what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar that's a good question our back bar is is it's somewhat curated um and we have a little bit of everything uh but not too much of anything uh but i would say that the biggest section currently is probably the cereal grain shelf. So our whiskey shelf. And this is on purpose because one, I'm a lover of whiskey, but two, um, I'm infatuated with putting producers of organic materials in the grain category. I think we really think about our produce and what where our produce and what soils they come from, when we think of wine, when we think of eau de vies, when we think of brandy and stuff like that, what we sort of space on it, whether it's due to marketing or whatever, when it comes to whiskey and cereal grain um, products. But the the grain that's going into your whiskey is just as important as the grapes going into your wine. Nice, yeah. Definitely, definitely fun to see a lot of producers placing more importance on that these days. You got some good folks down there in Nevada, some good folks across the Atlantic doing that as well. Um, yeah, the grain to glass whiskeys these days, it's a thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. All right, question number two here for you today. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Hmm. Um, I would say patience. Tell us about that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we're bartenders. We We like have fancy tools and things like that. But at the end of the day, we are part of a bigger picture of hospitality and we aren't that different than someone serving you at a table. Um, we're there to really make our guests feel at home. And I think the most important, one of the most important aspects of good service is having patience because this is a, this is a, a, a trying job. It's what, you know, it's, it's a lot of stress. You're on your feet all day. You deal with all different types of personalities walking through the door so it's nice to collect yourself at times. And I think patience is um, an undervalued tool and service. Nice. Good words of advice there. And a nice little segue into our third question here for you. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? I, you know, I, I, I never considered to like have one mentor or one person that gave me a line of advice that changed my life. Um, I worked with a lot of good people. Um, people like Claire Sprouse and so many of those, actually my current partners that I currently work with, Nora First and Avro Rojas, these are all um, inspiring people that I've worked with. And I think I've always kind of just centered myself around people that have thought outside of the cocktail actually, and really deeper into our industry and what makes it um, be a place that we want to be and what makes it a safe space for others to be around and want to work in this industry. Um, but one of the cooler lines... <laughs> that I did here um, was from a bartender that you actually probably know, uh, 
John Gertson. I know he worked in Boston for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, John once told me uh, the thing that makes a bartender great is um, where, how did he phrase this? To be a good bartender, you need to know what the door sounds like. And, you know, it's kind of silly, but what he meant by that is, you know, you're so in tune, you're not just focused on the drink in front of you, but the guest, how the bar top's looking, mm-hmm. how the floor's looking. And when you hear that door open, you're thinking about greeting that guest. That's a great point. So know what your door sounds like. I know that True Laurels definitely has a little creak to it. <laughs> <laughs> and be ready and be waiting there. Yeah, I love it. All right, then penultimate question for you, here for us today. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Man, that's, this, is, this is a tough question. <sighs> it has to be one, huh? Has to be one. I mean, I, I, yeah. But it can be real, mythological, hypothetical, shuttered, any bar that's ever existed. I really want to say, let's just add that I can't say True Laurel, my own bar. Let's just <laughs> say that. It makes it easier for me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so since I can't use my own, um, I would say definitely, if you've ever been to San Francisco, one of um, the beautiful things about this city is we have a bunch of great cocktail bars, yes, but what we really have is an amazing lineage of dive bars and neighborhood bars. It's just, it, the culture here is so good. It's really what makes it a drinking town is that we have just so many different styles, but we just have so many good dives in neighborhood low profile bars and there's a beautiful bar that is walking distance from my house maybe on purpose is why i moved here but uh it's called the royal cuckoo and it's a funny name it's a dimly lit red lit bar that only plays old jazz records and it actually has an organ built into the bar and every night there's an organ player and he has his friends come along and they have he has trumpet players and live jazz, and it's all for free. You just give them your tips. Um, and it's just a beautiful, warm neighborhood bar. And they make a great Manhattan. They'll make you a great Martinez. And I could sit there, chill, and listen to music forever. Sold. Sounds amazing. It's great. All right, then. Final question for you today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? This is like right before I die or it's just my last drink? Open to interpretation. <laughs> There's so many things I want to do before I die besides drink. <laughs> um, but, you know, it sounds like we're like just running circles here. But it's we, we talked about this drink because it, it really is in vain of my, my favorite drink. My favorite drink really is the Manhattan. It's my go-to drink. Um, it always makes me happy. And I love, I love it in all the different ways that we talked about. Like, I... I I really like a 2-1, but I don't mind a little splash of vermouth at a steakhouse hmm. where they stab the ice or they shake it and you get ice chips in it. Hmm. I like that version of a, a Manhattan. I like a classically stirred one. And I even enjoyed the one my friend Austin made me that didn't even have vermouth. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that's probably my go-to drink. Fantastic. Oh, Nico. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you on Cocktail College. And um, yeah, looking forward to stopping in next time I'm over there on the West Coast and trying uh, trying that coconut-infused reimagination of the drink. Sounds phenomenal. I could probably send you one. 
but I would love to have you by. <laughs> Let's do both. Just don't tell UPS or, uh, or, or, or the police. Not that we have, <laughs> but, um, cheers, buddy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the cocktail college podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seasai, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vine Pair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Greenberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>